Today you'll meet Priya. Priya's grief journey started in 2014 when she herself almost died from appendicitis. While Priya was still in the hospital, her mother suffered a brain hemorrhage. Two and a half years later, her mom received a diagnosis of terminal ovarian cancer on the same day that Priya's dad suffered a near-fatal heart attack. Priya's mom died in February of 2020 on her dad's 70th birthday. If you are enjoying hearing the stories, can you please go to the podcast and leave a rating and review? I'd really appreciate it. And now, Priya's story. Hi, this is Beth, and welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today, I do have a daughter without a mom with me. Her name is Priya, and she is over on the other side of the pond, as they say. Um, It's late at night for her, so I appreciate her being here. She's had a long day today, and um, I appreciate her taking the time to be with us and share her story. She has a uh, fairly complicated story, I would say. She's been through a lot, so I am going to turn the mic over to Priya and let her introduce herself, tell us a little bit about her mom, and tell us about the journey, and then I'll come back with a few questions at the end. So thanks so much for being here today, Priya. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. Um, So as Beth has introduced me, my name is Priya. My mum died on the 25th of February 2020. Uh, This was about a month before the UK went into a national lockdown with coronavirus. My mum was amazing. I was so close to her. We were completely inseparable. She was my best friend. Um, Growing up, I was an only child. She sadly lost three babies during pregnancy and two of those babies were twins and one of them wasn't (laughs) obviously um she was devastated at the loss of her babies and she really 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 valued me um I was the baby that she was really desperate for I was also a result of fertility treatment she needed help to have me um so I I mean, it was really clear throughout my entire life how much she loved me and adored me. Um, so at home, it was it was three of us. It was me, my mum and my dad. But it felt more like it was just me and my mum. My dad would work crazy hours. He would leave the house before seven o'clock in the morning and often not return until about 10 o'clock at night, sometimes later. So I, and that was seven days a week as well. So I really never saw him and he himself acknowledges that my mum basically raised me like a single mother. So we, we had a really close bond. We had a really special bond. Um, things started to get difficult in 2014. I nearly lost my life. I suffered from an appendicitis, which became infected, um, the surgeon didn't remove my appendix properly he left two centimeters of my appendix behind which became necrotic there were three areas of sepsis identified um so after my initial surgery I then had to have a second procedure or a second surgery three days later in the middle of the night it was two o'clock in the morning 
And in the UK, the NHS, as a rule of thumb, say that they don't operate in the middle of the night unless it's life or limb at risk. I was a very high dependency patient. They were doing my observations every half an hour, which is the most frequent, the, the, big, the highest frequency of observations that the NHS will do. So I was very, very close to losing my life. I then spent an entire month in hospital. Three weeks of those, I was unable to even eat a thing. At the very most, I was only allowed to sip water. Uh, they couldn't even offer me any food through a tube. And this was because in the initial surgery, the surgeon had perforated my bowel as well. So anything that went into my stomach would then be released into my body in a very dangerous way that could again be potentially life-threatening so I lost an extreme amount of weight I was bed bound for this entire time and it's only within the last week that I was able to walk again but I was only able to walk again with the with the assistance of physiotherapy and I was absolutely amazed and shocked at how in a matter of weeks I completely lost the ability to walk it was it was really shocking and then when I did walk again I was so unstable. I, my body was acting like I had drunk loads of alcohol. I just, I, I couldn't walk in a straight line. And it was so bizarre being completely sober and not being able to walk like that. Um, but I very quickly gained my strength back. But in that time, about a week before I was discharged from hospital, my mum suffered from a brain hemorrhage. It was a subarachnoid hemorrhage which they think was the result of an aneurysm in her brain, which then burst. And it's suspected that the hemorrhage was caused by the stress of my illness. Um, so in this time, just before, just before I went to hospital, sorry, no, not just before I went to hospital, um, I, was, I, was in a, I was in a relationship at this time. I was in a long-term relationship. I had been with my partner at the time for almost four years and we were due to go traveling in Asia for three months and we were due to leave a week after I had my original appendicitis. My partner at the time decided to go without me, um, leaving me in hospital, leaving me at one point completely fighting for my life. And when he got out there, he messaged me to say, I love it here so much. I want to stay here for at least a year. And I was devastated. I, I was completely heartbroken because my life is in the UK and my family is in the UK and I'm very close to my family. I couldn't picture my life in another country and leaving my family behind. That's something that my own mum did and I know how difficult it was for her. So she was born in India. And she moved to the UK when she married my dad. She left her entire life behind. She left her dog behind, which I think was arguably even more heartbreaking for her. Um, so knowing her experiences of having left her own life to move to another country, I just, even if it was just for a year, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't commit to it. So I was really heartbroken about what this meant for our relationship. I mean, the fact that he left me pretty much on my deathbed was a big enough red flag. I should have left it there and then. But I decided to stick it out. My hopes were that I would get better soon and go out there and meet him. 
and join him and enjoy the remainder of what should have been our three months traveling. Um, so I think it was the stress of seeing me so heartbroken that was kind of the final trigger for my mum's brain hemorrhage. So she was in one hospital. Um, she, she was in a specialist hospital for brain injury. Um, and then I was in a local hospital. So my poor dad, he's trying to run his business. He's trying to keep his business afloat and his wife and his daughter are in two separate hospitals, have both experienced extreme life-threatening conditions. And he, he was a shell of the man he was. He, um, my mum was very lucky. Her sister is from the States actually. She's currently living in Connecticut. At the time she was living in Nyack in New York um, and she flew over instantly as soon as she got the news of my mum's brain hemorrhage. So she was such a pillar of support for my dad. She was a pillar of support for me and she was a pillar of support for my mum. My mum in the early days of her brain hemorrhage wasn't conscious. So we didn't know what if any lasting effects this brain injury is going to have on her. For the first few weeks, I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to go and see her because, well, for the first week, I was still a patient in hospital myself, so I couldn't see her. And then for the two weeks after that, I still had an open wound. So there was an infection risk both to myself and to my mum. So whilst that wound was still healing, Again, I, I wasn't allowed to go and see her because she was in the high dependency unit. The first day I saw her after that was when things had taken a bit of a downturn. My dad left his shop. He ran a post office and a newsagents in the US. I think you call it a convenience store. Um, he left the shop in the hands of his staff um, and picked me up and said, you need to come with me right now. We need to go to the hospital. Your mum's very unwell. And that was the first time I had seen her since getting the news that she'd had the brain hemorrhage. She was swollen all over. She wasn't conscious. She, I don't think she even knew that we were there. Um, it was, this was a really difficult recovery for her. She was in hospital for two months and then spent a further six weeks in rehab where they, um, where she got physiotherapy to kind of help her get back on her feet. Um, in total, it took her two, two and a half years to really feel like she'd fully recovered from that ordeal. It was, it was quite huge. So for a, for a long time, she was depending on the use of a walking stick. Um, and then at about the two year mark, she started going to guided gym sessions with a registered nurse. Her and my dad started going together. At this point, my dad had finally managed to retire and sell his shop. So they were getting a bit more active. They were starting to go on holidays together. And then April 2017 hit. Um, we celebrated my mum's birthday. Her birthday was on the 5th of April. I drove into central London. Um, so even though she felt like her mobility 
had returned, her she now felt extreme fatigue. So she couldn't really use public transport that easily. It was just far too tiring for her. She had a disabled badge, so I was able to drive up into central London. We didn't have to pay for congestion charge. Parking was easy with her disabled badge. And it meant that we could we could go to, we could go to a nice restaurant. We had a nice meal. And then we were walking around Covent Garden a little bit, having a look in some shops, just having a nice casual family day out. And then we were driving home. And as we were driving home, we kind of we drove past our local hospital. And it was only afterwards that my dad had said to me, I didn't want to ruin your mum's birthday. But as we were driving home, I nearly asked you to pull into the hospital because I wasn't feeling right. So the next day, it's the morning, my dad, my dad has gone to work and he calls my mum. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning and she was still in bed. And it was very unusual for her to be in bed that late in the morning. Um, she, she was normally generally quite an early riser. She'd like to get up and get on with her day, but she wasn't feeling well. So he called my mum about 10 o'clock and his phone call got her out of bed. He said that he wasn't quite feeling right. His chest was feeling a bit tight and his left arm was feeling a bit strange. Um, so my mum was saying, you need to see someone. My dad had, uh, sorry, my mum had an appointment with her GP, her doctor for that evening because she was experiencing a number of symptoms and this appointment was to look at her leg, which below the knee had doubled in size. And my dad was saying, oh, no, no, it's fine. I'll just wait until the evening. I'll wait until you've got your doctor's appointment and I'll just ask about it then. Don't worry about it. I'm at work. I can't leave. There's no one else here to cover me. So I know, I know by this point he had retired. He had sold the shop, but he was still working in the shop to support the man who had bought it from him. So he was kind of helping with this transition, transitionary period whilst the new owner of the shop kind of settled into business. My mum wasn't happy with my dad's response and she knew that my dad was more likely to listen to me. So she gave me the phone and he explained the same thing, that my chest feels a bit tight, my left arm feels a bit strange. So my local hospital, um, we've got an accident and emergency section, um, which is for like severe emergencies. And then there is a critical care unit. So it's for patients whose health is maybe more critical and needs more urgent assessment than waiting to see your general practitioner, but maybe it's not quite a life-threatening threatening emergency. So I know that in this hospital, the reception desk for the two units is actually the same. So I said to my dad, in order not to panic him, I'm gonna come and get you. I'm gonna take you to the critical care unit. In my head, I fully well knew that this was the accident and emergency unit. Um, but if I said that to my dad, he would have told me not to be so dramatic and not to worry about it. He'll wait until the evening. So I picked him up, I took him to the hospital and I took him to accident and emergency. They did an ECG. Within minutes, we were in the back of an ambulance with blue lights um, being transported to a central London hospital, a big hospital. We were there within 20 minutes. 
which I, I, I didn't even know that journey was possible in such a short space of time. But it, um, the paramedics were amazing. Like they made my dad feel so at ease. Um, they, like they said to him, I know we're going to put the blue lights on, but please don't panic. Please don't worry about this. It's just, we want to get you there as quick as possible. Um, and he was, once we got up to the, once we got up to the main hospital in central London, he was out of the back, he was out of the back of the ambulance onto a stretcher straight into theatre to have a stent fitted in his heart. So he was having a major heart attack. One thing that really struck me is how much tolerance my dad has for pain. The paramedics asked him to rate the pain he was experiencing out of 10. And he said two. And the paramedic looked at him with a very shocked face, very much like the one you're making right now, Beth. Um, kind of looking at his ECG and then looking back at my dad saying, are you sure? That doesn't seem right. Um, my dad's always had a very, very high pain threshold, which actually really worries me going forwards. Um, so he, he survived his heart attack. Um, he now has the diagnosis of severe heart failure, um, but his ability to withstand pain does scare me following that day. Um, but I think, I think it's kind of scared him too. And I think he knows now to take things a bit more seriously. He's now 72 years old. Um, and the majority of men in his family have died in their 60s from heart attacks. So he's outlived his father, he's outlived his oldest brother. He, his other brother is still alive and is older than him. And I think is in his early 80s maybe. So him and his, him and his surviving brother are now I think the oldest living males from his side of the family, like in generations, which is amazing. And it shows how far modern medicine has come really. Um, so that was, my dad's heart attack. So we spent the day in that central London hospital, but I knew that my mum had her doctor's appointment that evening at seven o'clock. So I needed to get back and I had to leave my dad in hospital. This whole time, my mum not knowing what was happening, what was going on um, in the hospital, there was no phone signal. So I couldn't keep her updated. Um, but I also, without having answers myself, I didn't want to worry her because I knew that she wasn't feeling well. So we went back. I told my mum everything that had happened, um, but that my dad was stable. He was safe. He had survived and he was going to survive. <laughs> so we went to the doctors that evening. And like I mentioned earlier, her leg had doubled in size from below her knee. And when we were there, like we'd ex I explained to the doctor, like the, the day that I had had that I've already spent all day in hospital with my dad because he'd had a heart attack. And the doctor was so apologetic. And she said, I know you've already been in hospital all day, but I suspect that this might be a DVT or a deep vein thrombosis, a blood clot in the leg. It's something that could pose a high risk to you so it's essential that you go to A&E now to get it checked out so having spent all day in hospital with my dad I then took my mum to A&E where we were all night we we spent all night there and they did um they did something called a Doppler test 
and they didn't find a blood clot in her leg. The next thing that we were told was because there isn't anything in your leg, we're going to investigate for a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in the lungs. Um, because she had a D-dimer figure, which came from her bloods, I think, which was over 2000, which is a very, very high figure. And they said, because of this number and because we've not seen anything in your leg, if we don't, or if, if there isn't a pulmonary embol embolism present, we might need to look into the possibility of you having cancer. And that was the first time we'd heard that word cancer. And it was something that we hadn't considered could be a possibility. Um, they didn't find a pulmonary embolism. And within a few weeks, we had a full diagnosis of stage 3C ovarian carcinosarcoma. So it was a sarcoma, which is a very rare type of cancer, which is very aggressive. And her consultant's words were, if left untreated, this cancer will take you very quickly. It was so difficult. And I mean, after having been through the trauma of my dad having that heart attack, to then my mum being given this terminal diagnosis of cancer, it, it was so difficult. <laughs> um, that period of my life, feels like a bit of a blur. I was at the time studying my master's degree in music therapy and my tutors on, on my course were so supportive. They, I think had I been doing a degree in any other profession that wasn't therapy based, that wasn't based around kind of mental health and caring for other people, I don't think I would have been able to complete it. Um, I think it could have been very easy for tutors to turn around and say, well, you're not, you're not fit to study. Um, maybe, maybe you should leave the course. But my course tutors made it a possibility for me to carry on. They adapted the course to fit around my needs, to fit around my needs to care for my mum on an almost full-time basis. So a degree that I should have completed in two years, I completed in three. Um, it meant that I had more time to think about my studies, but I also had, more importantly for me, a lot more time to spend with my mum. So in her first year with this diagnosis, she had two major surgeries. The first of which was over nine hours long and she nearly lost her life then. Um, we were told to, if possible, we need to stay as close to the hospital as we can. So we stayed in a hotel directly opposite the hospital. We were told to keep our phones on overnight and on loud, just in case they needed to contact us. Um, in the moment, I don't think I really understood that that meant her life was at immediate risk. And I think, kind of reflecting back, I think I'm glad that I wasn't so aware of that meaning. Um, but I, yeah, we spent every waking minute with her in intensive care this time. Um, so she had one-on-one -on -one nursing to patient care um, with eyes on her at all times. Um, and I remember talking to one of her nurses who was looking after her and telling her our story 
the story of everything that had happened until now, including like my my mum's brain hemorrhage, my appendicitis, my dad's heart attack that had only happened a couple of months ago. And this nurse was crying her eyes out as I was talking to her about everything that had happened. And it's moments like that that kind of make, make me kind of take a step back and think, oh, well, yeah, it's it's been a lot. Um, my mum spent a further month in hospital recovering from that surgery. It was a full hysterectomy. Um, they also removed as many lymph nodes from the area as possible, but they weren't able to remove all of the cancer. She was left with a colostomy bag, um, which she ended up having for the remainder of her life. At first, when they informed us that they were going to be giving her this colostomy bag, they told us that there's a possibility that it could be reversible, that she might not need it for the rest of her life, but that wasn't the case in the end. Um, following that, she went through an intensive period of chemotherapy. And then once the chemotherapy had shrunk the majority of what was left of her cancer, then in December that same year, so this is still 2017, December 2017, they operated again. It was another very long operation. It was about six or seven hours. It wasn't as much of a huge threat to her life as the previous one had been, but it was still a huge risk. And she was still in hospital for a month recovering from the trauma of that surgery. Following that, she was offered a trial drug called Avastin or Bevacizumab, um, which it's it's not a chemo, it's not a chemo drug, but it was a drug that was proven to kind of, as long as it was working, keep ovarian cancer kind of at bay for a while. So, twenty eighteen was a relatively good year actually. Um, that treatment worked for a while, but then after I'd say after about six months or so her cancer started to return. And so her oncologist said, now that your cancer has started to return, this drug might not be effective any longer. And as it's a trial drug, we can no longer offer it to you. So from this, uh, she went through further rounds of chemotherapy, which this time were really harsh on her. Um, she was very unwell through all of it uh, the, and the number of times we had we had to take her into hospital because her because her symptoms were just so worrying um, we had a 24-hour helpline that the cancer center had given us and every time her temperature spiked or she kind of had an episode of kind of maybe blacking out or something we would call them and their advice would be come straight in so it was countless hospital trips so many hospital trips over a period of three years um, and then I got engaged in October 2018 and my mum was over the moon so we spent the next year planning my wedding um, but as 2019 progressed it was clear that she was getting more and more unwell. Um, that cancer was really, really taking a hold of her. So what 
my me and my now husband had originally kind of thought of as go as was going to be a spring 2020 wedding we brought forwards by about six months so we got married in October 2019 and given the state of the world from 2020 I'm glad we did I'm very glad that we we got that wedding in when we did um so uh, my my background is Indian so we had we had a lot of celebrations for the wedding like we had a formal Indian ceremony we had a henna party and then we had um like we had the English ceremony for the day so all of my family where they've been to so many Indian weddings they wanted a white wedding to go to and all of my husband's family were so excited for an Indian wedding so we we did the best of both um I had a white dress for the day I did the whole walking down the aisle thing and then in the evening we had an Indian themed wedding reception all our guests dressed up and my mum really pushed herself that entire week to make sure that she was as involved in everything that she could be and she was a trooper she did so well um by this point she was completely wheelchair bound she couldn't walk but actually that week of my wedding she was an she was an inpatient in hospital and she actually spent the majority of 2019 in hospital she spent more time in hospital than she did at home so for for our wedding um there was there was a charity called the Ambulance Wish Foundation who very kindly transported my mum from this huge central London hospital to our wedding venue in West Sussex, which I think driving time could be anywhere up to or exceeding two hours. And my friends amazingly all pulled together and donated money in excess of a thousand pounds to make sure that my mum could have a registered general nurse with her, not just for the day, but overnight as well, which meant my mum could stay at our wedding venue with us overnight. And then the Ambulance Wish Foundation transported her back to the hospital in the morning. Um, and then the, then two weeks later, sorry, um, was my graduation. I'd finished my master's degree. I qualified as a music therapist. Um, she wasn't able to find the energy to come to my graduation that time but I took my graduation to her my ceremony was in London it was a short train ride away to the hospital so I went to see her in the hospital in my cap and gown and I think that's some of my favorite photos of me and her like the look of admiration in her face to see that I had done it despite everything that we'd been through and everything that it took for me to finish that degree I did it <laughs> and she was still alive to see that happen she was still alive to see me get my first job as a music therapist um, and then her health very very quickly declined from there um, and we knew that it was just going to be a matter of time. Um, her, she was weaker. She was a lot more vacant in presentation. She'd lost interest in talking to anyone. She used to love playing little games on her phone or on her iPad, and she'd completely lost interest in that. She didn't want to watch TV. 
she didn't want to read any books. She just wanted to lie there and not do anything. She lost her appetite. She wouldn't even drink any water. And if we tried to encourage her to eat or try to encourage her to drink, she'd get really annoyed at us and she'd ask us to leave her alone. So we did, we respected that. Um, but it was a clear indicator that she was getting weaker and no, she probably didn't have long left. So I knew that, that that Christmas, Christmas 2019, I knew it was my last one with her. But she was at home for it. She, um, Christmas 2017 and 2018, she'd been in the hospital because she was very unwell, both years. So we had two, two Christmases in hospital. They were very difficult days. And then her last Christmas was at home but she was in a hospital bed and we knew it was her last one. And then she died in February on my dad's 70th birthday. We'd, um, we had celebrated my dad's birthday a few days early with my in-laws and my mum's sister had also flown in again from the States. She, uh, over those three years, she flew over so often, and we we're so grateful for her. Um, so we'd, we'd celebrated a few days early with my, with my husband, his parents, my mum, my dad, and my mum's sister. We had dinner, and it was really nice. And it was, it was one of the best days that she had had in a while. This was the 22nd of February. Um, the next morning, my dad called me early on, saying something wasn't right, and I needed to get. I needed to go there as soon as I could. So we got home. I, I got to my parents' house, and she was completely unresponsive. She had a blank stare in her eyes. She was looking up at the ceiling, and she was trembling. We called the nurse, um, who came to assess her and paramedics came and they informed us that it was the dying process and it could be anywhere from hours to days but they informed us that death was imminent so that was on the Sunday which would have been the 23rd of February my dad's birthday was on the 25th she died at 6 40 in the morning on the 25th of February and I really believe that she waited for my dad's birthday that she wanted to see his birthday in in some form it was his 70th it was a big one um my dad hasn't felt able to celebrate his birthday since for obvious reasons they um it would have been their 45th wedding anniversary last month they got married in 77 so they were together for more than half of their lives for a very very long time and that's my story that's a story Priya you are you are so right just like those nurses that yeah um that you feel like you understood the severity of it when you would see you know how other people um, responded, you certainly have been through a lot. I'm just finishing my one note, it would have been 45 years anniversary. Just last week, 
So um, September. 6th of September. Mm -hmm. So about a month about a month ago. Right. Okay. Um, so one thing I'm interested in just uh because you said, you know, growing up that you were an only child and that your mom was almost like a single mom because your dad was so busy with the store. How has your your relationship with your dad transitioned now that it's just the two of you? Mm, it's very different now, actually. Um, growing up, there was a lot of tension between me, between me and my dad. We didn't have the best relationship. I, I think I was quite resentful of him for not being around. And I think he was quite resentful of me because I don't think he felt appreciated. But And I think there was... There was a miss. There was a huge miscommunication there. For him, he was providing for his family. He was working all hours under the sun to provide for us, to give us a house to live in, to give us a home to live in. Um, whereas I, I wanted to see him. I wanted to spend time with him. And he thought that that meant I didn't appreciate how hard he was working, which wasn't true at all. I I really did appreciate it, mm -hmm. but. I feel like I really missed out on really valuable opportunity to bond with him. Um, since my mum died, we've become a lot closer. Yeah. And I know that she would be so happy to know that because me and my dad's arguments used to really stress her out. They used to really upset her, but we were always at each other. We did not get on um so it's it's very different now and I'm really glad because I now that he's my only parent I don't want to be in a place where I resent my only parent and I don't I don't resent him anymore mm -hmm. so. well that's one of the, the special things about getting older too is that you start to see your parents mm -hmm. more from a human perspective than um, you know, uh, how you look up at them as almost as like heroes when you're, you know, a kid and growing up. Um, but I can guarantee that she is so happy that you are getting on now because I, I even experience this sometimes with my husband, like my love for my kids is completely different than my love for my husband. So I could, I understand that your mom would be stressed because she loves your dad and loves you and to have the two of you, you know, perhaps not getting on as best as you could. I'm, I'm sure it is making her very happy to know that you're, you have, your relationship has changed and has grown. <clears throat> um, so one of the other special parts that I liked that you shared was that, you know, when you went to see her in your cap and gown, that those are some of your favorite photos. And um, I lost my sister in January of 2020 after she had, um, was stage four breast cancer for almost 10 years, lots of time in the hospital. And my niece and I often talk about how strange some of those times in a hospital could be like some of our best memories because, you know, mm. it wasn't a great place to be. We weren't happy that she was there, but, um, you know, it's amazing. It's kind of ironic sometimes how those situations can be the, the happiest and the saddest all at the same time. Yeah. It made me think of when you said that you that those are some of your favorite photos. And yeah, yeah. And I think it's amazing though that you could see the admiration in her eyes. That's 
that'll yeah. be something that you'll take with you for the rest of your life you know yeah yeah definitely mm-hmm. yeah well well I you know I, I don't have any great words to um because I can't change your situation because your your situation is um you know that's the part about the one one of the hard parts about grief is that we all want to fix things and make people feel better, but this is not a problem that's going to be fixed. Um, but you're going to have to, you know, learn how to live with it as you're going to go through different stages of your life. And um, you're still kind of in that newlywed phase if you just got married. And well, I guess you're five years in, maybe you're past that. <laughs> you're coming up on five years, right? You said uh, uh, three, three years, um, October, oh, yeah. October 2019. Um, so it's our, yeah, it's our three year wedding anniversary in a couple of weeks, okay. but we've, we've been together for eight years. So, okay. so okay. we, we know each other <laughs> very well. Okay. Um, yeah. But no, going kind of thinking about grief, one of the things that really strikes me about grief is how it's quite possibly one of the only guaranteed things in life is that we're, we're all going to die and it's the one thing that like I said is, is completely guaranteed yet it's quite possibly the most painful thing we experience mm-hmm. anything else in our life is completely unpredictable and we don't know what course our life is going to take but we know that it's going to end but the one thing that we know is going to happen is just so devastating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times, like you mentioned, that you almost don't really feel like you were aware of how serious her first surgery was, that nine-hour surgery, and how um, you know life-threatening it was for her. I think sometimes our brains do that because mm-hmm. of because. I, I don't think we would be able to handle, you know, actually being able to acknowledge how dire yeah. that situation was at the time. Yeah, well, I think I think part of that was also relief that she was out of the surgery, that she had survived the surgery, because for those nine hours that she was in there, they were terrifying. And with each moment that passed longer than they said it would, because they said it would only be, they said it would only be a couple of hours. Um, like maybe four hours maximum and for it to be more than double what they said to be the maximum that's when panic reset in so that night when we were told to stay nearby and have our phones on and I didn't realize the severity of what that meant I think it's it was more maybe protecting myself mm-hmm. um, as well as feeling that relief that she had survived her surgery Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah our brains are amazing amazing things that sometimes tell us lies but sometimes can um you know help protect us from things that we Mm. we we probably really don't have the capacity to handle in that situation so yeah um, yeah I'm, i'm totally totally um, intrigued by our, by our brains and our minds and, and the way that um, people deal with things. So, um, so I, I didn't ask you this before we started, but I normally try to finish with if you have some final thoughts that you want to share with the listeners or something that you wish you would have known or 
ways that we can, you know, support people in grief. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? Um, I, I, I guess one, one of them is, I, I feel like I haven't actually addressed it yet, um, was the timing of her death being so close to a national lockdown. And one feeling that really surprised me was gratitude. I was grateful for the timing of her death because had it been a couple of weeks later, there's every chance that I wouldn't have been able to be with her as she took her final breaths. There's every chance that she wouldn't have been able to have the funeral that she deserved and her family and loved ones wouldn't have been able to say goodbye to her in the way that they did. Um, my mum was quite religious, she was Hindu. And so as part of the dying process, it was part, as part of one of the um, services surrounding her death is prayer services. Um, so you do a prayer service on the first Sunday. The funeral has to be about a week later. And then you do a final prayer service on the following Sunday. So that were, there were three different events that wouldn't have happened had she died just a couple of weeks later. So I'm grateful for the timing of it. And I'm grateful that she wasn't here to see what the world became. Um, in terms of supporting someone through grief, just listen. Um, don't try to offer any advice. I Some of the things I've found most unhelpful have been, oh, it will feel better with time or maybe you should think about this, maybe you should do that. And that's not necessarily what I want or need. If I need to talk about my mum, I need to talk about her. If I need to cry, I need to cry. Um, I, I have got one family member who doesn't let me cry or tries not to let me cry. Um, and <laughs> as a therapist, uh, I think crying is great. I, I, love a good, I love a good old cry. Um, it does make me wonder why she's so afraid of it. But no, um, just allow people to grieve as they need to and don't try to suggest alternatives or alternative ways of being. Everyone grieves in their own way. We have a, a word for those sayings that people use that are, that are supposed to make you feel better, but that have the opposite effect and they're called platitudes. Mm -hmm. That one about, you know, time <laughs> heals all wounds. No, no Grief isn't linear. It's not linear at all. No, no. And those, those stages too, those were actually for people who were with terminal dying. diagnosis. Yeah. Yes, it wasn't for yeah. the, those of us that are left behind. It was for the actual patient who was preparing for death, not mm. for those of us who are still living and dealing with death. So um, yeah. yeah, I 100% agree with you that that's, we need to just give people space and time and um, find the ways that that work for us work for you yeah you know what one of one of the most helpful things I found actually is that I had a group of friends who like in the early days would do my grocery shopping for me and um, they'd get it delivered for me um so they wouldn't necessarily go out and buy it all but they'd order it online and get it delivered to my door and so it was it was one less thing to think about I had family members who stepped in to help with the funeral planning um because with the timing of everything, especially with our culture, how quick everything needs to be done, there's no way I, I could have organised a funeral within the space of a week. So I'm very grateful for those family members who were there to help with that, who knew what we needed, but 
but we're also in maybe a slightly more stable headspace to be able to think about what was needed for those practicalities. Yeah, practical mm. help was definitely one thing that I really valued the most, I think. Okay. Yeah, I love this, tra the tradition for the, the Hindu service too. It, it sounds like it's almost like a three week process, which I think is amazing because here in the States, we tend to try to rush a funeral as soon as possible, um, which just takes up all your bandwidth to grieve. Mm -hmm. Like you, you don't grieve until, you know, a week later when the service is done and the funeral is done and the luncheon is done. And then everybody goes back to where they're supposed to go. And then you're just like slammed down with this reality that you haven't actually had a chance to process yet. So yeah. Um, yeah, that sounds extreme. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, well, Priya, like I said before we started recording, I'm sorry that you are a part of the club, um, but I know that you will, through your music therapy, I just love that because I love music. I just love music. Um, I'm not musically inclined, but I'm a music lover. So um, I know that I you will use it to serve and reach others. And I'm sure in many ways it will continue to serve and reach you at times when you need it. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time as well. And again, thank you for providing this platform. If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website www.yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in sharing your story on the podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.